0: If we look at semiotics, which I think is going to be one of the strengths of the next ten years, massive amount of interest in Europe, um, which comes really back to sort of this cultural understanding, and it's really hard to sell semiotics in North America, to, particularly to the US, um, which is much more um, hammers and nails and tangible and. So, what's the US, US like the that? name? The US, I mean, is, is much bigger into hard metrics. Um, it's very hard to persuade people in the US around the Byron Sharp yeah. view of brands. It's very hard to persuade them about the emotional case um, that the British researchers have, have identified in how emotion drives most things. And it's much easier to say... It got this number of clicks, this number of downloads. Um, The average time between seeing it and buying it was this.
1: Real People is produced by Square Holes, an agency conducting and publishing customized explorative research on key consumer markets, customers, and population segments. Square Holes also provides associated consulting and support to ignite positive business and social behavior change. Visit squareholes.com for more. Radio. hello there. My name is Jason Dunstone and welcome to Real People, where we interview average and not-so-average people, academics, researchers and leading thinkers to help us better understand what real people believe and how they behave. There is likely no better man to talk about where market research is heading and where it has been than Nottingham, UK-based, globally-trotting Ray Pointer. Starting out 40 years ago as a programmer on innovative market research tools, he has since had many pivots in the sector and is author of multiple market research publications from mobile market research to online and social media and semiotics. In 1999, Ray founded The Future Place, a provider of market research, training and consulting. He is also the man behind NewMR.org, an initiative offering regular online events with leading researchers, consumer insight professionals, thinkers and doers from across the world. Topics include artificial intelligence, visual storytelling, video analysis, semiotics, automation and more. Ray travels the world as a keynote conference speaker and sits on the editorial board of the Green Book Research Industry Trends Report or GRIT Report and is an advisor to universities and research agencies on key trends. We discuss changes as data has become bigger and bigger and finding true strategic insight more and more important amongst the clutter and the complication. An interesting discussion for researchers and those interested in better understanding people now and into the future. Let's not waste a moment. On with the show. Hit it! That's what I'm talking about! Wait! Okay now, from the beginning. Thank you for joining me today, Ray, um, all the way from the UK. So I'm going to start off right back at the beginning, like I do with all of these interviews. What were you like as a young boy?
0: Oh, intolerable. I really was hard to get on with. Um, Passion for knowledge, but a passion to share it with people who didn't want it shared with them.
1: Can you unpack that a bit?
0: Yeah, so I was always reading um, news stuff. I was into, I remember, Greek mythology and Norse mythology and things like this, and then I would go and try to convince all my friends that they should be, and they were less interested. So what did you like about
1: mythology? We had one of our other... um uh, interviewees uh, christina dreiser who was um she her big things about mythology now and she's talking about how it drives out the way we think so i'm interested about what what got you excited about it when you were a child
0: i think it was uh, probably the fact that they were coherent stories yeah, yeah. and morals within those as well so i've never really thought about why i was interested yeah. but i suspect
1: you got Robert- lost in those stories do you think
0: Yes. yes, I mean generally, I, I did, and I do get lost in stories, but it was that there was usually some interesting outcomes yeah. and consequences. So small things were set in place early on, which would then become major things.
1: Yeah, and you said you were difficult to get along with. What does that mean? <laughs>
0: oh, I was a um, hundred miles an hour, or. Whatever the equivalent is, 160 kilometres <laughs> an hour, um, and just very noisy and bouncing up and down. Yeah, um, I was at a active, school. Is that right? I was very active, but I was in a school where nearly everybody was a skinhead. This was the <laughs> 19s, early 1970s. You had to be able to
1: run fast. <laughs> I had hair
0: down over my shoulders. They had stay press and bova boots, and I had purple loons. Um, yeah. really didn't try to fit in.
1: Yeah. Were you studious? No. 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 <laughs> so what you what, like, do? You have, did you have favourite subjects or subjects that oh, you... Oh,
0: yes. Math, science. Um, because they were easier for me than in the early days, they were my favourites.
1: Yeah, yeah. So if you look at you as a child and the career you've had and where you are now, what were some of the poignant moments in your life that kind of helped form the man I have in front of me today.
0: I think one of the, the key things was I, I did computer science and economics university and I got a job when I graduated as a programmer and I started write and the, and it was to write statistical software for market researchers. And I found that as I watched them run my software, I was stepping forward saying, no, do it like this. Yeah. And no, ask better questions. My, my software is not going to give you the right answer yeah. if you're not using the right questions yeah. in the so first place. So you were course. straight
1: out of uni, but you felt comfortable being able to critique. Like, yes, yeah, appallingly
0: so right. comfortable. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. We had an, another um, person we interviewed for the show, Martin Reed, who came from... The UK, and he had a very—he went into an engineering route. But he said his first job. He said, "No, this is not right. We've got to change it." So it's not—I think it's nice having that—that that ability and confidence to be able to question. Where does—where does, where do you think that comes from? That confidence that if you know the know a better way, just say it.
0: Um, my parents—they yeah. thought—they thought the sun shined out of my backside, <laughs> and so if I wanted to do something, they always just backed me up. Yeah, really, so so solidly. Yeah. um i was at a school where a lot of people left school at 15 um we had no money and i stayed at school till i was 18 and went to university which obviously you've got to have the ability but other kids had that you also had to have the parents who had even though they had no money were going to back you to do that and i was lucky to have that yeah so i think Provided my parents liked what I thought, I really didn't too much care about anybody else.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, and you said that some of your, like, a lot of your school um, fellow sc- school students didn't go to university. What, what made you go to university? Um. Was that thirst for knowledge. Really, or was that... really,
0: yeah. Just I wanted to learn more and more and more. Now, so when I was fifteen, I didn't know what university was. I wanted to go to college to do what we called our A levels so I went there and did those and then I met people who were going to university and I would say well I know I'm brighter than them so I should be going to university
1: yeah and other uh, uh, foundation moments in your life that now you're a, a leading thinker in market research innovation and you have been for a number of years how did how do you kind of how do you develop that background where does that come from
0: well, the, the guy that I started writing this market research software for is one of those people who should be famous, but he died before the internet, yeah. a guy called Alan Frost. And he was massively innovative and an iconoclast and really phenomenally bright. And so I was working with him from a very early age. And he was like a lot of bright, go-getting people. He didn't know how old you were, so I was 21, and he was listening to me and saying, "Right now, you do this ray, and I'll do this bit." Um, and I've seen other people who do that too, um, who, when you look at them, will they'll, they will listen to the taxi driver, they will listen to the new graduate, um, and if they like what they they see, they will run with it. So mm-hmm. I was
1: irrespective of that age, yeah. absolutely.
0: Yeah. So that was that was a real boost then to be able to do plus the world was changing so the first computers i was working on were apple twos 1978 they were the first ones in the country everybody else was using mainframes or mini computers so things were changing and new opportunities were opening up and a lot of people who were older didn't get what that technology was so it made spaces
1: yeah that made spaces. So, for somebody like yourself who understood that and was willing to drive that change, you were.
0: Well, that's half of it. The second half is somebody who, when they see a space, steps into it. Yeah, okay. And that that happens all the time. Today there are spaces. There were spaces in the fifties. Most people choose not to go into those spaces because until they everybody
1: else is, is that right? yeah,
0: because yeah. they're they're a bit more scary to some people. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and a year after I started as an employee, I created my own company,
1: yeah.
0: um, which would have been fairly aggressive now, would have been fairly aggressive 10 years so ago. So how,
1: how long after you're, you're graduating from uni did you set up your own company?
0: About 12 months. Yeah, okay,
1: yeah. <laughs> And And was it a tech-based business?
0: Yes, it was to provide software to the research industry, and it then grew in conjunction with one particular client, Alan Frost, into a much bigger enterprise. Yeah.
1: So you were you were into coding and tech, yeah. Before it was the thing. It really isn't. It? It, yeah.
0: Well, it's been the thing in the UK with some people for a long time. We had people like Alan Turing during yeah. the Second World War. So yeah. there's a strong bedrock of computing and coding in the UK.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and I was picking up on on that tradition.
1: Yeah. So keeping that going. So other kind of poignant moments in your life that. Alad, you've obviously you, you you travel as a presenter now. You um, you have new MR that's your you, that you drive. What what are what are some of the other kind of poignant moments that right. or foundation moments? Uh, foundation
0: moments. Well, one of them was within the space of a year, I did two bad client presentations, um, and it was quite interesting because both of them had the same problem. I enjoyed the presentation more than the audience did, (laughs) Um, and that was such a good moment for learning about understanding audiences and working with audiences, Um, and I, I built a tech company and we did a lot of quantitative modeling and advanced predictive analytics, and then Alan Frost became, the guy I was working with, became unwell, had a stroke, so we need to do something. And the company was bought by a company called The Research Business, which was headed by Wendy Gordon, who is one of the big founding of Qual researchers, and Colleen Ryan, another big founder, who's now based in Australia. So my company and my associates were suddenly working for a company that was groundbreaking in Qual. Some of the best there was, and we were Quant. So for a year, we buttered heads, um, and by the end of that year, my appreciation, my understanding of qual had completely changed. I mean, I don't know how hard it was on those two, really, but it was certainly hard on me as well. Mm. But a fascinating year of just reappraising everything in terms of what is the way, how do you solve problems? What is the range of tools you should be using?
1: Yeah. So having those qualitative, more qualitative uh, the questions like why and 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 the quantitative heads like just just crunching together not necessarily agreeing and then the term is like sort of that storming and then you start to form and is that, yes, is that right yes
0: um forming storming norming something like that yeah. all those morning um and many years later what my my son i've got three children and william who has got a master's in physics said so qualitative research is what you do when you can't ask a properly defined question and i said yes which is an awful lot of the time when you're dealing with humans Mm -hmm. that if you've got a properly defined question you can have a quantitative answer but if you don't have that properly defined question because you're dealing with humans and humans are not perfect and they don't do the same thing each time then you need to be looking at it qualitatively
1: yeah I'll ask in a moment what has changed over your career, which is I'm sure there's there's a lot, but I'm really interested in the things that haven't fundamentally changed. So there's still what was what was right then is still right now. It's the fundamentals of, of research uh, that you that you see uh, is still being maintained.
0: I think the first thing is that the ability to understand what the client really needs um, is is a really core skill and one of the lessons i learned the hard way was a client came to me and they said we want to do these comb charts in about four or five countries I said, what are comb charts and they showed me um something that their company had been buying from a large manage- management consultancy and they said we don't want to work with the management consultancy we want to be able to control the process can you collect these in five countries across europe and produce them And so we did that and we collected, they used the scales they wanted on the questions they wanted. I went to the first debrief and suddenly became aware that I wasn't answering any questions the business had. I had delivered exactly what they'd asked me to deliver, which was data in this format, but there was no linkage with the business problem. I had just given my client what he'd asked for, not what he'd needed. Mm -hmm. And that is something which is, is really constant in market research the ability to understand from the client side what they need and then to understand what is possible when talking to customers and consumers and citizens because not everything is possible some things are more likely to work than others and that that is a core essence
1: mm. in the successful research firms globally whether it's now whether it's a few decades ago, we're able to almost re- reverse brief and clearly understand what the client really wants and what is possible. Is that is that right?
0: Yes, and there's a quite an interesting example in the UK between two companies that were successful. One was the research business and the other was Millward Brown. Um, so Morris Millward and Gordon Brown setting up there in Warwick at roughly the same time. And they worked out who they were working for. So, Millwood Brown was working for people who were buying advertising and wanted to know whether they were getting value for money. Before ad tracking, they couldn't tell whether they were getting value for money. Now, they had a tool that allowed them to measure the advertising agencies. And the advertising agencies obviously hated it. Mm. Um, When they got bad numbers, loved it when they got good numbers. The research business had a different model. They specialized in how can we improve advertising. So they worked their clients essentially with the advertising agencies. Advertising agencies loved them because they told them how to make the ads better. They didn't tell them whether they were any good or not. They said, right, this is how this ad is working, this is how you can make it better. So knowing what your client really needs and factoring in is what has made the GFKs and the Neil what well, the Nielsen's. What stock am I selling was one of the early questions they were answering. Mm. Um, And now it's just like grown-up complicated versions of many of those basic questions. Who's buying it? Where they're buying it? Why are they buying it? Um, You've got to know who in your client organization needs that information and what do they need to be able to use it.
1: Mm. It Almost of that. uh, consultant, whether it's a research consultant or otherwise, and the client or the buyer, prepared to have that friction—that like that friction of—is that what you really want? And what's is that, is that is that correct? Is- it,
0: it is. There is a very there's a, a real limit to how good your stuff will be if you simply give clients what they ask for. Yeah. You have to push back. You have to refuse to do some things because they're not right and they won't work or the time scale's not appropriate, um, if you are going to produce good stuff. Now, of course, most people who are rude and uncooperative with clients are unsuccessful. So you also have to be good and you have to be at the right time and you have to have something that they need.
1: When you say at the right time, is that that a maturity thing? I'm assuming it's not not, not necessarily an age thing, but it's a maturity
0: thing. No, no. The right time is that if you have the right idea at the wrong time, it doesn't take off. Um, So you have to get to people when they are at the right time. Dating is a bit like that. Most people seem to get married between about 25 and 40. They will have met good partners before that but it's been the wrong time Mm. so you've got to meet the right partner at roughly the right time for that all to work
1: so we've got this approach there's a need for this approach and that that symbiosis is that's
0: right and it may be that you there's a need for this approach you've got a good approach and they've had two other things go wrong and now they need to come to you yeah um and we we see this sort of thing as well with big companies. So Procter & Gamble did the big, big reorganisation when Lafley came in. Because they had lost billions of dollars of shareholder value, they now had permission to change everything. It's really hard to change an organisation that's not in trouble.
1: Yeah, okay. so build on the about the, the, the ability for a, an advisor to... Um, yeah, go to war, and or have some degree of friction in the relationship. Does that come into uh, creating an in- insight? One of the one of the conversations around the research industry is what is an insight. Can everybody be insightful? Is that consistent over time of what what insight means from an insight project?
0: I think it's it's related because an insight has to be new. It has to be a new way of looking at something. That's one of the many parts of an insight which means you're going to a client and you're challenging what they do at the moment now sometimes they will simply accept that but other times they are going to push back because if your client never pushed back you would end up selling rubbish to them Um, you need that push back from the client just as much as the client needs push back from you um, a process of dialectic where you actually get closer and closer to the truth because here is something new, and the client says, well, no, it's not new, that's just this rebadged, and then you will argue. And maybe the client's right, maybe you're right, but you you will only find out by pushing. So there has to be friction. It reminds me of the phrase, now I wonder if it was... If it was Shaw who said it, um, that the reasonable person adapts themselves to the world, and the unreasonable person adapts the world to them, so all progress yes. is based on unreasonable people.
1: Yeah, yeah, okay. So, what is insight from a whether it's a research, a market researcher, or a social researcher, or anybody else that's listening who has to look at a lot of data and come back with insight for their uh, for their. Clients or for their, their managers, what, what do you think an insight is?
0: Well, it varies by um, academic discipline, commercial discipline. So in the commercial world of market research, an insight has to be something that's useful. So we start off with that. Now, contrast that with somebody who's doing their PhD. An insight has to be a new piece of knowledge that adds to the body of knowledge, that's fine, but it wouldn't work as a market research insight. Market research has to be useful. Mm. It has to be generalizable. I've got to be able to use it ongoing. It, so telling me the best way to get from here to Flinders Street today, because there's a, a party there and there's a fake going on there, it's not an insight, it's a piece of information. Mm. Uh, but finding out that there is... Um, these things called Ubers, which I've never heard of, which will get me there effectively, first person who tells me that, if I've never heard of them, that's an insight. Second person who tells me, well, that's old news. So it's got to be new, it's got to be useful. Um, It's normally going to be a new way of looking at something. Um, It's got to help make sense. So it's not just a a method of solving um, the problem. For many years, people knew in ancient times that if you had a piece of string three times, four times, and five times the length, you would make right angles. Mm. The insight was Pythagoras is saying, it's the sum of the squares on the hypotenuse to the two other sides. I've got to be equal. But people knew it was a three, four, five triangle before mm. that, that that gave them this benefit. So it's how you move from findings through to something that can be generalised, it can be useful, Um, it's going to give you a new way of looking at something. And most weeks, you are not going to get an insight. I think there is a debate about whether you could get one most months or most years, that sort of frequency. Mm. And of course, we devalue it if we say, well, your job is to develop 100 insights a week, Mm. because it's not going to be an insight, it's going to be Mm. data, it's going to be findings.
1: Mm. How do you, I don't mean necessarily as young people, but sort of people who might be looking at it, how how do you know when it's an insight? Do you need need your client to be feeding back? Do you need internally to be able to go, that's insightful, that's not? Yes.
0: Yes. Um, You need, for a lot of things, you need other people. um, And you really need somebody at the client to give you the sort of feedback that allows you to realise now they can do something they couldn't do before. Mm-hmm. Um, I've unlocked something, the lights come on, and they can move forward in a better way, a different way than they could before. Okay. And you often need to be careful because what will, what you will actually hear is, oh, yeah, I already knew that. Yeah, but you didn't know it till I told you mm-hmm. you knew it. <laughs> um, so the words oh that is an insight we can do it differently are not necessarily the words you're listening for
1: mm. and and that definition of insight has generally been consistent across your time in research would you say
0: we were much less interested in insight in the 1970s when i joined the industry so we were methodologists so on monday i might work on retail on tuesday or Wednesday finance, Thursday sanitary protection, um, Friday baby care or something like that because I was a methodologist. And in the clients, in the Unilevers and the Procter & Gamble's, there were people who had great methodological understanding and knowledge about the brand. So a lot of the insight that was generated was actually generated client-side. Over the years, that has shifted. Mm. And now... Most agencies are expected to have a really deep understanding of the vertical. You don't get people working in massively different fields day after day after day. You see them learning between projects rather than on projects, and they're expected for more insight. So I think insight itself has become more important, and data has become bigger. And because data has become bigger, the need to reduce it to an insight is more important than it was when all we had was a survey of 500 people based on a short survey. You could you could produce all the answers mm. and then say, right, here's all the data, at least all of these findings, use it as you see fit. Mm. Now... I'm going to offer my client 1% of the findings possible from that data. How do I pick the right 1%? Well, I have to make sure they build into an insight, yeah. which means they can do better business.
1: Yeah, okay. And is that been clearer about what the right questions are? The need to be clear about what the outcome is that now is more important than maybe it was back a few, a few decades ago? I
0: think it is. I think it's because, as well, the questions are more complicated. So, we can see this in a newer market. If you look at China, when China first exploded into a capitalist market, you really didn't need to do a lot of market research because any good product you put on the shelf with the Western brand was going to sell. But as the market matures, you then need to start looking for an advantage. And if you look at where marketing is in Australia, the United Kingdom, in Australia, in um, the USA... It's all around emotional attachment to the brand. All the products are effectively equivalent. They've all got equivalent pricing. They've all got equivalent distribution sort of techniques. So we're now trying to win the, the battle for the emotional engagement um, or we're trying to make this so it has better mental availability to people. How do we do that? Well, that is a much harder research problem. Um in the 70s, X percent of people know about you. You need to increase the number of people who know about you. What a useful piece of information? Now you need to find out why people are know about you. They've considered trialling you, but they're not buying you. We're right into motivational areas, so we're digging deeper. Mm. And that, that requires a change in what happens as well.
1: Does that require a change in the... Uh, the type of people who work in research is that like the whole multidisciplinary skills is it just about having
0: i think research has always been a multidisciplinary because it's it's an industry that people have fallen into so for no particularly good reason we've been multidisciplinary and i think that that clearly needs to continue i think there are going to be some challenges because We're going to see more marketing scientists who are very highly paid and therefore will change the balance inside some organisations and companies. Um, So we're going to need to make sure that we continue to have parity for the qualitative side, we have parity for the storytelling um, as opposed to the people who are working with Large amounts of data, and that they get a better understanding of the deficiencies of just data. Mm.
1: What else do you see as the major trends and uh, shifts uh, increasing demand for or technologies now than there there was?
0: I think the the what we're seeing we've seen for many years the shift towards automation. It's going to continue. Prices are going to fall and fall and fall. Um, the growth of standardised products is going to, to increase. Um, and this has happened throughout the industrialised history. If you go back um, into the industrial age, there was a guy called Whitworth who noticed that when you built steam engines, when they went wrong, you had to go back to the blacksmith that built them because his taps and dies with different sizes to everybody else's. So we end up with the Whitworth standard. And now you could take bolts and nuts from different um, garages and you could make the steam engines work and move forward. The Internet is so powerful because it's based on TCP IP, a standard interface. Without that, if we were all using different comms, it wouldn't work. So that sort of standardization is moving forward Strongly, but research doesn't fit that model really very well. Mm -hmm. If I've done um, a research project with one agency and then I do another research project with another agency, I can't necessarily integrate that data nicely. I can't search across it with meta search tools. Sometimes they'll have sent it me in PDF and it's almost unsearchable. But even Mm -hmm. if they sent me in a data file, it's not something that's really standardized um, in the way the semantic web is attempting to create a standardised tool. Mm. So we're going to see more standardisation, we're going to see more automation, which is going to keep splitting the industry into data and data analysis companies and consulting companies. And that's going to open up a, a bigger split than there has been in the past, and that will be interesting.
1: Yeah, okay. What are the methodologies that you're seeing... Through uh, your group, new MR or 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 other other work that, that are blowing your mind, like that, are, you're going to go. You look at it and you go, "Wow, that's just amazing that we're, we're at that point."
0: Video is the one I think that is that is coming through. Where for years we've wanted to take videos of people, and then we said, "Right, let's take 16 30 second videos because it's going to take me forever to process them." And we are just beginning to get to the point where machines are processing the videos, where you'll be able to say, let's look at 100,000 hours of people in the shopping mall and ask the machine to describe what are the 20 most common activities. And then we will look at the 20 activities and we will talk to some people and we'll code the final piece in the message to say okay what we need to change is this or how we can leverage that information is this mm. um but that is is really going to change in a in a big big way
1: it's almost qualitative observation research but adding on almost like a like a, a technology a, a measurement to it is that it, right
0: well If we can make a defined question, it's not qualitative. If a machine can do it, it's not qualitative. Um, So we have treated video in the past as a qualitative input because there were no machines to process it. And the qualitative insight will be how you jump from that information to what else could we do. Um, And I think that that is going to be a really interesting part of what happens. And the second thing, which I think is we're going to see more of, are the construction of real-world experiments. So we see this with A-B testing, where people like Google will keep changing the page around, see which one works, improve it, and move forward. But when we start to do large-scale, passive data collection, and we're looking at the video, we're saying, OK, nobody is looking at the bottom row. So let's change the bottom row. Now what's happening? Now still nobody's looking at it. Let's change again. So integrating A-B testing with where eyeballs are moving, where people are looking at the packaging, um, trying to find out which signs work and which signs don't work and why. Um, all of that's going to be, I think, a fascinating part of the process.
1: Yeah. What about the advances we're having in... Using neuroscience or measuring the brain. What are, what are you thinking around? What's your thinking around that?
0: We're, we're probably less excited about that than we were two years ago, okay. and I suspect we'll be a bit less excited in two years' time than we are now. Why
1: is that? Can you explain?
0: Um, Overclaim was one of the problems. The second is that it wasn't cheaper. So almost any new research method has to be cheaper than what goes before it, irrespective of whether it's better. The only real exception is if you have a really big problem and you know you've got a problem and there is no acceptable solution. Then you might pay more money for something else to come in. Mm. And neuroscience doesn't offer that by and large. Um, So it's being attacked from one side by people saying, "Eh, I'm not sure... This facial recognition, IAT, actually works. Here are some new papers which are challenging it. But on the other hand, people saying, well, yeah, it may be 10% better, but it's 100% more expensive. Mm. It takes twice as long to run the project. What I need is faster. I don't need it to be better. I'd love it to be better. I really want it to be better, but I don't need it to be be better. mm, I need to change all these decisions I'm making at the moment where I have no evidence to a place where you're going to improve my 50-50 guess to Mm -hmm. 60-40. And really a lot of the focus around the neuroscience is, hey, can we make that a 95-5 difference? Yeah, okay. Um, And that's not where most of the game is. Mm.
1: Do you have any sense of whether the market research industry will play a bigger part in artificial intelligence and and reusing the data collected from artificial intelligence into informing decision-making, or is that another sector?
0: That's yeah. That? Market research will need to use artificial intelligence tools. It must not try to develop them. It's a really expensive process, and almost any good tool has got so many different uses why would you develop one for the research world? Uh, so one of the big ports of call is AWS, the Amazon service in there, where you're going in and you're using tools that are developed for lots and lots of different purposes. That makes a lot of sense. Um, proprietary tools where we bring in one or two um, artificial intelligence coders into a research company could work, but it's unlikely to, mm. whereas picking up the tools that are being generally um, developed, so the people who are using Watson and all of these sort of things to say, right, how can we apply that to what we do and move forward? Um, how can we apply machine learning to what we do and move forward? That makes a lot of sense. We are going to have to use a shed load of AI over the next 10 and mm. 20 years to stay relevant. If we try to carry on doing things the old way, we will just be too slow, too expensive.
1: Yeah. How does market re- yeah? How does market research, I guess, um, compete? So we've got uh, AI we just talked about, big data. Got well, any any monkey can do a survey it seems, but maybe not. Um, how does the market research industry uh, differentiate and illustrate that they are they own consumer insight or whatever it might be?
0: I think it really has to be around providing useful solutions relating to consumer-customer insight. So let's not go too far away from that core ground around customers. So we are not going to talk to companies about supply-side management. If you talk about the management consultancies, they do some of what we do, but the vast majority of what they do is about supply-side management. How can you buy it, make it cheaper, produce it faster? We're about demand-side management. Us and the advertising agencies and the marketing companies and the PR companies, we are all in demand-side management. How do you understand why people want things, how they find out about them and how they use them? So we need to be working much more collectively across with advertising agencies, marketing companies, PR companies, market research companies in understanding people we're going to use these technologies to understand people. And there's two groups of people we understand. We understand clients and we understand consumers. And we're filling in the gap between the two. Because there is a real art in specifying a project. Even if AI designs the survey, designs the fieldwork, somebody has got to talk to the AI device. And what you will notice, if you watch different people talking to Alexa or talking to Google Home, some people get it to do stuff really well and mm. some don't because there is a way of talking to AI that is productive. Mm. And that is the skill that we need to enhance.
1: Yeah. Are there, like, I guess, like when we talk about sectors like, say, design thinking or behaviour change, it seemed to be sectors that certainly weren't around when I sort of started in research 25 or so years ago. Does market research have a role in those? Behaviour change? Behaviour change,
0: absolutely, because it's we should spend 90, 95% of our time behaviour change with customers to buy products or use the products in a new way, um, which has got some interesting implications for sort of long-term loyalty. How do we get people to um, use our product better so they're getting more value for money because then it would be hard to go and use somebody else's product because you wouldn't have all of those efficiencies. So think longer term as opposed to saying, well, it's quite nice if they don't actually use the last 10% mm-hmm. in each bottle to say, right, we really, really want to make sure that they do. How do we change that behaviour um, and we, we follow it through? So behaviour change is is a central part quite clearly. And we need to revisit the usability battle. We gave up, really, on usability being a core market research skill way too easily. Um, Usability should be involved in our business. We won't be 100% of usability testing, Mm. but any form of usability testing with consumers, we should be be, um, a range of market research companies involved in that space.
1: Yeah, okay. And big cultural differences you see? Obviously, you you speak around the world uh, and you um, you have dealings and, and write about what's happening around the world. What are, what are the regional differences or trends that you see in different areas?
0: Oh, um, there are some interesting ones. For example, if we look at semiotics, which I think is going to be one of the strengths of the next 10 years, massive amount of interest in Europe, um, which comes... Really, back to sort of this cultural understanding, and it's really hard to sell semiotics in North America, to, particularly to the US, um, which is much more um, hammers and nails and tangible. And so, what's the US like name? That. The US, I mean, is is much bigger into hard metrics. Um, it's very hard to persuade people in the U.S. around the Byron Sharp view of brands. It's very hard to persuade them about the emotional case um, that the British researchers have have identified in how emotion drives most things. And it's much easier to say it got this number of clicks, this number of downloads. Um, The average time between seeing it and buying it was this. Now the truth will be adding all of those pieces together and we all do them in different balances. Um, It's... much harder in a lot of Asia, for example, uh, particularly Southeast Asia, to see data really being used to think about design change as opposed to simply to support decisions. So, in the US, in Europe... In both of those, you will see research-changing decisions and research saying, no, boss, you're wrong, you need to do this.
1: Beyond marketing?
0: Um, beyond marketing, yeah. yes. That um, there is a belief in evidence-based decision-making. And In the
1: US, is it qual-quan? Or is it skewed you, quantitative? It
0: skews quantitative, and the qual is relatively... Um, halfway between quant and qual and it's very much around the number of people who said they would do this was this much as opposed to um the emotional content that this was raising was all about this this and this which is what you might see in a european
1: um so semiotics just for listeners so analyzing codes and symbols and symbols
0: and signs um and, and what does this mean and so i i did a post recently which was i was in japan and near my apartment there was a sign and it said no in japanese no bicycles and then in english bicycles prohibited and there was a picture of a bicycle with a line through it and then a little blue flag attached to it, which again said in Japanese, bicycles prohibited. And I was say, what does this sign mean? You might think it means no bicycles. And then I took the picture on a Monday to Friday, and there's like 100 bicycles all around the sign. Mm. Now, this sign means there are places where somebody thinks you shouldn't park your bicycle that other people think there is. There are no, no bicycle signs in places mm. where people don't park bicycles. Yeah, yeah. Um, and as soon as you see it's they have they've done the, they sign four times in three types of signage, English, Japanese, and pictures, you realise they're not getting the message across. And somebody in officialdom thinks if only people understood the message, they would change their behaviour. Now, the problem is not that people don't understand the message, it's just that the message is not changing the behaviour for some other reason. And that's really what semiotics goes towards... Why do we write this? You know, what does red do in for this brand? What does green do for this brand? Um, when we see a bank say we want to be the best little bank, what exactly does that mean?
1: Mm. Central, like South America, Australia. What? What? Are, what where is their leaning?
0: Um, increasingly peripheral. Um, I hate to say, as a guest down here. Um, but Australia, In Australia, so Australia, yeah. if we, Australia first. It was 20 years ago, Frank's, or was it more? Maybe Frank's Small. the powerhouse really of the region.
1: That's where I started, Frank's Small. Yeah.
0: Now, the powerhouse of the region, Singapore, um, and China is the the great hope. Japan, obviously, a lot of money base there. India, for a lot of the thinking, a lot of the execs, a lot of the marketing scientists, a lot of the software. Australia, shrinking really year after year. And the number Is that, is
1: that, a, is that, a, is that a shrinking demand or is that a. We're not selling it well enough?
0: Oh, I think it's, a lot of it is driven by not selling well enough, um, a lack of, a lack of hunger to go after those markets.
1: Um, Markets within Australia or markets beyond?
0: Markets beyond.
1: Yeah, okay. Yeah, there's a limit to... So Australia can't sort of see themselves as being a domestic um, market. They need to um, see it as a global market.
0: In terms, if you look at the SMR, global market research data, the amount of market research conducted in Australia is quite good. So you can look at what is the GDP for the country per person. You can look at what is the amount spent on advertising and does market research keep up with those? Yes, it does where it falls back is on its ability then to reach into the region reach into the wider world Um, there are now astonishingly few australian market research companies of of any size and of any sort of impact Mm. Um, and those that that are tend not to have a major international impact even the ones that are really quite innovative um, you know, the ruby charchas and so on. Limited international impact. And when I think back to... They
1: my, might have a UK office, for example. Yes. Is that what you're saying? Yeah.
0: yeah. But they don't really have this sort of punch that we would have mm. seen 30 years ago where there'll be, you know, a considerable number of people from Australia. It's not just Australia. Sweden has seen a very, very similar decline. Um, if you go to an SMR Congress now, even a regional conference, um, the number of Australians attending is way way down you look at Latin America you mentioned before it probably has a smaller impact on the market research world than Chicago yeah okay Um, it doesn't not only does it not compete with the United States it doesn't compete with one of the major cities in the United Mm. States Um, there are some really interesting people um, and there's some fantastic projects but they're spaced out and there is no oomph coming out of that, really.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. Because Our second speaker was a guy called Suet Antula. I pronounced that wrong, sorry. Suet. But he, was taught, he came from India and he was talking about how Australia often is a bit, um, has a view of being very innovative, but uh, he used the term in India there they're, they're leapfrogging. They're sort of they're, yes. they're, they're stepping beyond Australia. They used to have no phone, and now they've got faster internet than, than we have, and and see themselves very much as a global market, where Australia often does uh, see themselves as domestic. I was just thinking back in your point, you mentioned of Frank Small and Associates. When I I first started there, one of the reasons that Frank Small and Associates was bought by t- uh, Taylor Nelson Sofres when I was still there. Um, was because they had, they, Frank Small had spread out f- across yeah. Asia. And you're thinking, it's mind-boggling now to think, well, there was no internet. It was very isolated. Uh, countries where eh, it wasn't probably easier to get a, a phone call in. And, and and we did it. We had that, I guess, that pioneering spirit. And it's 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 not saying necessarily there aren't companies in Australia that aren't pioneering and aren't brave and bold, but it's a nice kind of bit of a jab sometimes to go, maybe we could be a little bit bolder. Is, is that fair?
0: I, I think so, and especially reaching out so there are plenty of people i mean i mean maybe it's a you know so it's, it's a good life it's a good climate um sitting here looking at the melbourne rain um but generally speaking it's a good climate and maybe that's enough for people to say okay i will do good research in australia i'll earn a good living job done um but thinking around those themes and looking back over nearly 40 years now of of travelling around the world with research, there are fewer Australian execs in the global companies in Asia Mm. than there used to be. We see them still in Europe, um, but coming home to Europe is hardly being brave and bold, Um, but not in the way that 25, 30 years ago there really were Australians everywhere across Asia... Now What's it's changed?
1: Well, you're an outsider looking in. Grow-
0: got a bit older. Got a bit flabby. Yeah, okay. got a bit
1: comfortable. And that's the same kind of point that a- Stuart made. He, yeah. said, he said, "Well, it's too comfortable. We've got a safety net. It's like we, like we've got lovely lifestyles." I mean, what
0: is it? Twenty years of economic growth here now. Um, it's. It's not difficult, whereas, yes, if you're going out to Myanmar or somewhere like this, um, and, and people do, there, you know, there are Australians there, um, but not really in the same sorts of numbers. Mm. So I think some of that is middle age. Yeah, perhaps. OK.
1: Would you look at a research agency doing great work globally? Which you sort of point up as a really good example of maybe a whether they're a startup or I'm sort of thinking maybe not one of the bigger groups, maybe sort of a startup going, wow, they weren't here a few years ago and now look what they're doing.
0: Yeah, I mean, several really. Vision Critical would be one that I would know well and I've done work with. Insights out of Belgium. Belgium, I mean, that's tiny compared with Australia. Mm. And they are pushing, and there are one or two other companies now coming out of Belgium as well, partly fired up by that same sort of process. Um, Canada, which was vision critical, but also Hot Specs. Um, Lieberman Research Worldwide, LRW, awful brand name, but really some very interesting work um, and beginning to, to grow. And then some exciting small ones like Glimpse It, which has just been bought by a larger company, um, applying a combination of AI and human techniques in order to be able to get at things in, in new ways. So, yeah, quite a lot of, of interesting things going mm. on. Of yeah. course, Brain BrainJuicer, as, as was System 1, as they now call themselves, again, another interesting brand. Um, at the conference here, we've got uh, Fiona Blades from Mesh, created some really interesting stuff, and there's some projects.
1: Yeah. There's a list in the US that's a list of innovative research agencies, and I can't remember the name. The of it. grit one. Yeah, the yeah. grit one. So, what? What's? Do you have an observation of that when you see that? Do you wait for that to come out and and look um, and well analyze no, the report? I,
0: I'm on the editorial board, so yeah. I, I get to see it before it comes out. Yeah. Um, and it is fascinating because there are two ways to be innovative. One is that you're something like System One Brain Juicer. And you publicize you are very innovative. And the second one is that you're somebody like Ipsos, who channels I'm a big company, but I'm gonna do this and this innovatively, and a lot of people will therefore benefit. Because obviously most people don't get to benefit from insights, most people don't get to benefit from brain juicer because they're medium to small size companies. But if you have something innovative at a GFK, TNS sort of level. A lot of people can benefit from it. Nielsen do a lot of interesting work. And that gets picked up in there as well. So that's quite an interesting split between the two. One of the ones that's come into the league table the last couple of years, I think is very interesting, is Zappistool, um, who are very much around disintermediating a lot of the market researchers. It's much lower cost. It's much faster, highly standardized, highly automated. And I think we're going to see a lot more of that around Mm. in the research world.
1: That's great. I started off uh, with you as a child and and what you were like, uh, and that was great. We'll come back to, as we move forward, about what your suggestions are for young people in the future. So whether that's children or whether it's young professionals, what's, what's your thinking about the priorities of having a successful career? Or suc- a successful career, successful life. Yes. I don't really mind. How do you
0: take that? I think you have to make sure that your life and your career fit together. Um, so a successful career and an unsuccessful life is, would be pretty awful. Um, a successful life without having a method of funding it is a challenge. So if you can have a career that lets you do what you want to do, that's obviously a big positive. And then there's the old saying that if you can find a job that you love, you'll never work a day in your life. Or you will absolutely work every weekend for the rest of your life, That's depending right. quite on how you define you it. You are working, <laughs> and, yeah, <all laughs> and the sometimes time. it still sucks. But <laughs> um, my own belief is that you need to be very good at something, and it almost doesn't matter what the something is it does matter if you pick up
1: that deep skill that you have that you're good at
0: yes that that most of the people around you don't have um so if nobody else around you can speak languages and you do languages that's fantastic you can turn um, we're seeing people who are not good enough artists to make a living in the art world being really great as illustrators and helping people produce better material that way um It's fairly easy to amuse a conference audience with humor. Don't think you can go to the comedy store and do that. So you, yeah, being the best comedian in the market research world, that's an achievable aim. Um,
1: Some would argue it's a low bar.
0: (laughs) In, ah, that, that
1: comes.
0: (laughs) One of the things you're looking for in life are low bars.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, I remember doing some work in category management and I was just amazed at how low the bar was in category management and how easy it was to make an impact. Frankly, market research itself is a relatively low bar. It's why we have more equality of opportunities because the people who are going into the really um, top-end stuff like finance and banking are not playing in our pool. So take advantage of, you know, if you can see a low bar, it's probably not low to other people. It's low because actually you're good at that. Yeah. And so develop your deep skill yeah. and keep keep learning. Assume that most things you're doing now you
1: won't be doing in the future. Yeah. There's a couple of points in that, that, that mediocre in a category is opportunity. So it's, that, that, that's great. And, and I wrote a blog some time ago, I think it was about um, Beyond Ordinary, I, I called it, how we're getting, everybody's getting good at being good at Everything Anyone can do, a, arguably a survey or, or whatever, but we're almost losing sometimes that desire or that ability to drill deeper and to get stronger, uh, which is it's nice. And then some, of our, some of our interviews have, have said that same thing of going, you've got to find that area and, and digging, digging deeper and become a, becoming the best in your field. When it's not a clear area, obviously you were into technology and programming when you were a young guy, what if you just don't know? I know guys in their 40s who are still going, "I don't know what I want to do when I grow up." Oh, How do yeah. you
0: define no, that? I, I don't know what I'm going to do when I grow up. <laughs> I, I, I'm a big fan of not having a long-term plan. Have a short-term plan. I'm going to do this next. I'm going to do this next." Um, and you then need to balance with your personality type sometimes. so one mistake can be sticking with things too long. Obviously, you will know somebody. Can you explain
1: that a bit more?
0: Um, So you decide you want to be an auditor. So you set the audit exam, but you fail. So you sit them again, and you pass the next level. You go up one, and you spend all your evenings. And some people have done it in three years, and you're 10 years in, and you're doing it. Now, once in a blue moon, that's that's right for people. But generally speaking, if it's not successful, or you launch a new business, and it doesn't take off... um, or well, frankly, you don't work hard enough when you work mm-hmm, from home, mm-hmm. or whatever it is. Don't try to fix the problem. Do something else. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, you do meet people that don't stick at anything long enough. Mm-hmm. So it's, you can't give the same advice to everybody. To some extent, it's got to be tailored to what they're like. Yeah. So you don't. You want to make sure that you, I think, have a short-term plan. Yeah. You say, okay, this is what I'm going to do next. I'm going to look at this, I'm going to move forward, I'm going to do this, and then I will have another look at where I'm going. So, I don't know what the longest plan I've ever had is, probably when I did a part-time master's. That was sort of committing myself to four years, but each of the modules only took a year, so I didn't have to carry on doing those.
1: So, it's steps it steps to a good life rather than yes. i want to be at that that pinnacle point you need to you need to you need to step up a mountain to yeah, get to I'm, the top yeah
0: as long as i'm going up yeah, yeah okay I'm, I'm going in the, heading in the right direction i'm a member of um, a political party back in the uk and we had a fantastic leader who took power in the late 50s until the late 60s joe grimmond and party only had about five MPs when he took over and was in a terrible state and they said what are you going to do to organize your people what's your, going to be your big strategy he said five of us we don't have a big strategy he said I'm going to get my people to do what we used to say to people in the army because he had been a senior commander in the army when in doubt march towards the sound of gunfire <laughs> okay and that's kind of what would be my message Where is something happening in the industry? March towards where things are happening. Don't go marching off into the side games and find out what is interesting. If you work for a company, find out what the boss is interested in. And if you're interested in it, push. Mm. Now, if you're really not interested, you work for somebody and they're into neuro-linguistic programming and you think it's bullshit... Well, yeah, you're not going to follow that lead. You're going to wait for another one. You want to be a bit like the people sitting out in the surf waiting for the good one, but not quite so laid back that they spend half the day doing mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. Um, but don't take the first wave that comes along. You know, Something comes along, is this interesting? Do you think you can get really involved in it? Um because if you want to be interesting to clients, if you want to be interesting to employers, you've got to be interested.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And that means picking it, the right... It need to be interesting? To be interesting, yeah. you've got to be interested. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, so you can't, you can't fake it. Yeah. You can't say, alright, I'm going to be really interested in semiotics when you're not. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's so much stuff coming around, pick the stuff that you're interested in, give it a try. If you like it, do some more of it.
1: Mm.
0: Um, rather than say, "Here is my plan."
1: So, pick a door, go through that door, and just just keep going down that track. Yeah. Okay. You're you've written a few books, and you've got a website. And you, any suggestions in terms of where people, books they might look at, websites they should go to?
0: Um, in terms of websites, then I would say you really want to be following uh, the Green Book blog and a lot of the stuff that Lenny produces. That's kind of core thinking. And then you want to find something that nobody else tends to read. So, and it doesn't need to be really exotic. Um, so Christine Look, who's been here in the past as a keynote speaker, she's very much into Fast Company, and so she adds a bit of that into what she does so you want to be looking at some market research stuff, and then you want to be looking outside and saying, what else can I see that's going on? Certainly you want to be reading business books. One of the biggest criticisms of market research as I hear from clients, is that they just don't understand do some business enough. Yeah. Um, so you want to be looking at the free economics and these sort of books. You want to be understanding, if you're in Australia, what are the points of disagreement between Labour and the Coalition about economic policy and how does that affect my clients? How does it affect my banks? How does it affect my pharmaceuticals? How does it affect my beer brands? Mm. Um, all of these sorts of issues around that.
1: Yeah. A lot of our listeners are going to be, um, I guess, buyers or potential buyers of research or just people who are curious about the world. Uh, it's a silly question, but it's a question sometimes we have to answer it in our own firm. But why does market research matter? Why should people be investing in getting independent, professional market research rather than doing it themselves?
0: Well, why customer insight matters, first of all, is that you're trying to reduce the, the probability of a mistake, increase the probability of success. About 85% of new products fail. That isn't going to change. If you can get 80% of your products to fail and your competitors have got 85%, you are going to be really successful. So it's about chipping away at those two sides. How can I improve my odds of success? How can I reduce my odds of failure? Evidence-based decision-making. Now it comes down to a trade-off, time, money, And the insight. If I don't need a market researcher to tell me that, that's fine. Now, for a lot of things, you can now Google it and you can get a pretty good thing. You can crowdsource it. There are ways of going around it. On the other hand, you will probably find if you come down to something like a survey, you would ask a really dumb survey and then misunderstand the responses. Um, So I saw a survey published in the newspapers in the UK last week. And somebody had, uh, from the campaign for real ale had asked people, is beer too expensive? And the vast majority of customers said, yes, beer should be cheaper. No surprise, Sherlock. Um, that doesn't help anybody. What was fascinating around was the numbers they came back. Actually, beer is cheaper than Starbucks coffee in the UK. That's fascinating because a lot more work goes into beer and yet we think beer is more overpriced than Starbucks coffee. That's a fascinating topic. And if you want to understand that, you need a market researcher.
1: Mm. Yeah, okay. So when the question becomes more complex...
0: As it becomes more complex, then knowing how to define the problem properly, knowing what the different sources are for answering it, and then understanding what the answer means... And any market researcher, one of the first things you do is you ask a whole lot of people who will try this, and 75% of people will try it. And so, market researchers, yeah, that means about 15% will actually buy it. Mm.
1: Um,
0: Because we know that you have got to offset from what people say to what happens in the marketplace. Um, And that is a a knowledge, and then, of course, we have skills to bring into that process.
1: Do you see any other shockers in terms of um, when people maybe do research themselves and maybe get the wrong, the wrong answer or it, doesn't, it does more harm than good?
0: Um, I see a lot of it around millennials where people ask millennials questions like how important is it to have ethical values? And they say, oh, it's really important. And they pay no attention to what millennials buy, which tend to be products like Apple with no ethical value whatsoever. Yeah. Um and not looking at the mismatch, they're just asking questions and believing answers, and that is probably the biggest danger for somebody who is not a market researcher: mm. is believing what they're told.
1: It's interesting. So, a good market researcher, or a good researcher, or a good non-researcher who's looking at data is has a degree of cynicism Absolutely. and questioning. Is that yes. right? Yeah. Okay. Oh, yes. oh, that's good. I feel better. I feel better now. <laughs> Just closing questions, Ray. Uh, your own books or your own websites you'd like to direct people through to or Oh I think New M R is a Yeah,
0: NewMR. New, new MR, uh,
1: Is that dot org? Is that,
0: is that right? New org. The easiest way to find um, is put my surname into a Google search, pointer P O Y N D R and the topic you're interested in, and see if the two come up together. Okay, it'll either be me or the Pointer School of Journalism in North America. Okay, um, we tend to vie for popularity.
1: Yeah. You're on Twitter. Yes. Yeah. What's yeah. your Twitter uh, handle?
0: That's Ray Pointer.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, LinkedIn, Ray Pointer. Uh, being fairly early helped, and I've got an ancestor who couldn't spell Pointer, so it's been P-O-Y-N-T-E-R. I said a P-O-Y. So one of my tips for anybody who's got a young child to be born shortly is give them the name that's likely to be easy to get a a domain in the future.
1: Yeah, it's good. Um, I rank quite highly on um, on Google in my own name, which is my, my, my children always cringe that I even know that fact. But <laughs> <laughs> I would have thought there's like every now and then I've, I've I've connected up with another Jason Dunstone, and they've kind of been a little bit creeped out that I care so much. <laughs> but there we go. <laughs> At the moment, I'm unique. Maybe yeah, good, good idea. Get your get your child's domain name before it runs out, and, and their Twitter handle and their Absolutely. Instagram thing. That's one of those things you can get your child when they're born. (laughs) Uh, Thank you so much for your time, Ray, and I look forward to listening more to your uh, conversations and presentations over the next couple of days at the Research Society Conference.
0: Great talking to you, Jason.
1: Hey, Jason here to say goodbye. Until next time, please subscribe to Real People via iTunes, your favourite podcast platform. While you are there, please leave a review. If you're interested in receiving our every Friday, same time, emails on everything human-centered, customer-focused, entrepreneurialism, and thinking different, popular articles by me, the Square Holes team, and special guests who have included Professor Barry Bergen, Christy Anthony, and Stuart Anantula, please go to squareholes.com forward slash blog to read and join our email list. You can also follow me, Jason Dunstone, on Twitter or your favorite social media. Thank you for listening. Uru.